2: This is the Tom Hartman Program.
3: Tom Hartman here with you. Local communities are standing up, and in some cases standing up, for the rights of nature. An extraordinary process, an extraordinary event. Thomas Lindsay, the Senior Counsel for the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights, CDER, Center Ooh. for Environmental org, and CDER underscore org is the Twitter handle, is with us. Thomas, welcome back to the program.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us, Tom.
3: So tell me about this story here with this Pennsylvania victory.
2: Yeah, so it goes back a while, back to 2014. Folks may not know, but the fracking explosion in the United States, this hydrofracking for natural gas that's occurred in the country, produced about 189 billion gallons of fracking wastewater in the United States. And that's equivalent to 14 and a half days of Niagara Falls basically falling into the earth. And so fracking companies have been taking this carcinogenic, heavy metal-laden, radioactive fracking waste and dumping it into the ground. So that's produced about 36,000 oil and gas wastewater injection wells across the United States. With one of those planned for this very small community of 700 people, in a place called Grant Township in western Pennsylvania. And starting in 2014, the folks in Grant Township, not wanting to be used as a toilet for this kind of fracking waste, decided to adopt a local law with our help to ban wastewater from being injected into the township. And when they passed the law, of course, as happens often with communities that pass these kinds of bans in the face of a state or federal permit that's been issued for these kinds of operations, they were sued by a company called Pennsylvania General Energy. And eventually their local law was overturned by a federal judge who also cited the township for payment of monies for violating the corporation's constitutional rights by refusing to allow the frack wastewater injection well from coming in, and also find uh, the two lawyers that were representing Grant, and I was one of them, $52,000 for daring to raise the legal argument that the locality should have the power to say no to this kind of harmful activity or project coming into the municipality. And so it's been a long saga in Grant Township, but it didn't stop with the federal court's order overturning their local law. They adopted what's known as a Home Rule Charter, which is, in essence, a local constitution for their community, and reinstated the ban that the federal judge had overturned. So pretty much an open defiance of the federal court decided to draft a local constitution that had this ban language in it that the federal judge had overturned. And I think to everybody's amazement, in some ways, in mid-March, the state agency, the Department of Environmental Protection, which had originally issued the state permit to the facility to go into Grant Township, reversed itself and decided to revoke the permit on the basis of the locality's adoption of that ban within their home hmm. charter in the municipality.
3: Was that a political decision or a legal one?
2: Well, the fact is we don't know, but in the letter that was sent out from the state agency, it specifically referenced the locality's ban and said that under Pennsylvania law, under the regulations they were operating under, that they were forbidden by law from issuing a permit that would violate other law. And for the last 40 years, the DEP has not, these state agencies really haven't seen local laws as having viable bans. So when they talk about issuing permits that would violate law, they've pretty much been talking just about state law. But this was a legal interpretation that the locality's ordinance, the locality's Home Rule Charter that bans injection wells, actually was binding on the state agency, that they were acquiescing to that provision. And so in that respect, it's a pretty big deal. It's only happened once or twice before But in this context, it was a state agency basically recognizing that a locality has the right to ban these types of harmful activities from coming in.
3: Right. But this was the state agency recognizing that rather than a court. So the state agency could have just said, you know, these people are going to fight us no matter what we do. They're a pain in the butt. Let's find another town that is not so activist, you know, a town filled with people who watch Fox News, and we'll just inject the poison under their houses instead of these people's houses.
2: Yes, absolutely. Which is what the companies have been doing up until now, which is shipping the waste to Ohio. So this is the first set of wastewater injection wells that were scheduled for Pennsylvania. But in reality, what it does, it takes the state agency off the side of the corporation and basically forces the corporation to now not be in a position where they can use the state agency to force the project in. So I think it's the beginning of a turn. Yeah, beginning of a turn towards legal recognition of these kinds of local rights. And I have to say that we've worked over the past couple of weeks on the COVID-19 novel coronavirus stuff that's happening at different places. And while a lot of our work is focused on environmental issues, this legal doctrine of localities being able to override the state when they provide for expanded protections for human health and the natural environment I think you see the same situation arising in places like Tupelo and Jackson in Mississippi, where the Mississippi governor has overridden cities in Mississippi from doing shelter in place orders. And so I think this doctrine that we've developed, which was the law of the land back in the 1800s, but somehow has been forgotten, the argument is that localities, municipalities can't be preempted, overridden by the state, if they seek to provide expanded or heightened public health and environmental protections for people and nature within their municipality. So it's an exciting kind of uh, new movement built around this local control concept in which cities are kind of in the lead and municipalities are in the lead, whereas the state is overridden in these cases under this legal doctrine.
3: I think the last time we talked, Thomas, was, at least here on the air, was around the time that Lake Erie was being recognized as having rights, the rights of nature. Where is that at, and how is this movement spreading across the United States?
2: So the Lake Erie Bill of Rights was the subject of a lawsuit brought 24 hours after the people of Toledo overwhelmingly passed it. And unfortunately, a federal court overturned the Lake Erie Bill of Rights. Folks are still deciding whether to appeal the decision or how to move, but The Lake Erie Bill of Rights stuff has led to other efforts like those in Florida, where a dozen counties, including the 30th largest county in the United States, Orange County, fifth largest in Florida, has now voted to place a Rights of Nature initiative onto the countywide ballot in November. And so I think the worthiness of places like the Lake Erie Bill of Rights in Toledo is that it has birthed, in some ways, a new acceleration. Of rights of nature laws in places like Florida, where you have this fairly massive movement now moving to deal with and recognize rights of nature for rivers, bays, and estuaries.
3: Yeah. Has this been through federal courts yet?
2: No. The Florida stuff is on the verge of challenging some preemptive authority by the state. It's fascinating to watch as the corporations use state legislatures to try to preempt these measures from moving forward. I think. In some ways, that is the thing that shows them as the most effective and that they're a real threat. The Florida House and Senate about a month ago passed bills to specifically preempt rights of nature laws from being adopted in Florida. So we'll see what happens next.
3: Yeah. Well, keep us up to date on it. It's great talking with you, Thomas Lindsay. He's the senior counsel of the Center for Democratic Environmental Rights, CDER. Center for, F-O-R, org is the website, CDER underscore org. Thank you, Thomas.
2: Thanks, Tom. You're listening to Tom Hartman.
3: The southernmost continent on Earth is Antarctica. Most people don't even think of it as a continent, but it is. It's a huge landmass. It's about the size of the United States or of Australia and complete with mountain ranges and giant glaciers and all this kind of stuff. And it's been relatively stable for the last 15,000 years and perhaps much longer than that. I know they're pulling ice cores out of there that are three, four, 500,000 years old. But now, they're noticing a problem. This is in McMurdo Sound. It's an area known as Cinder Cones in the Ross Sea. They are finding methane bubbling up from the floor of the ocean to the surface and breaking the surface. Now, back a few decades ago, a couple of scientists came up with this doomsday theory about why 97% of all life on Earth went extinct during the Permian mass extinction 250 million years ago. At this one particular point in time, there was this gradual increase in CO2 levels that was the result of some really aggressive volcanic activity in an area now known as the Siberian Traps and the atmospheric CO2 levels or atmospheric carbon levels, CO2, methane and other things associated with that, were steadily climbing over thousands of years as this massive lava eruption just was continuously pouring out lava. And then a tipping point was hit and suddenly the CO2 levels just exploded or the carbon levels in the atmosphere just exploded and the temperature just exploded. And we saw this very sudden, you know, it went to half a degree, one degree, one and a half degrees, two degrees, two and a half degrees, three degrees, over 10,000 years. And then all of a sudden, in a few hundred years, it went zoom right up to five or six degrees Celsius, increased temperature, which was enough to kill 97% of all life on Earth. We literally rebooted life. There were a few small mammals left. A few small animals, for that matter. I mean, this is what gave birth to the dinosaurs, for that matter. There were some small lizards, too. And they evolved into dinosaurs. This is this major, major event. And what these scientists concluded, and it's still this is still debated in, in science, but you know what they concluded is that that was the point at which hundreds of millions of tons of methane gas that had been frozen on the surface of the ocean melted the methane freezes along with water at the same time and it forms these crystals called methane clathrates or methane hydrates that are methane bound up in a little lattice of frozen ice of frozen h2o molecules so it's like trapped in these little tiny cages of ice And when that ice melts, the methane is released and it goes up into the atmosphere. Now, this is all methane that was produced by bacteria digesting plant matter, but it was bacteria digesting plant matter over literally a billion years or maybe hundreds of millions of years. And it had settled in the floor of the ocean. And when the oceans warmed up as a result of this gradual increase in carbon levels from the volcanic activity, At some point, the ocean got warm enough and the warmth got deep enough in the ocean. Most of these clathrates are within a half a mile to a mile of the edge of a continent, including the continent of Antarctica. And they're not at deep depths. They're typically within a few hundred feet of the surface. And so when that water warms above 32 degrees, boom, they get liberated. They come into the surface and when it happens, planet wide that's the clathrate gun being fired and that leads to a mass extinction event that kills off almost everything and what scientists have been saying is well you don't have to worry about that that's not going to happen here right now because most of the methane clathrates around the world are stable particularly the ones around antarctica which are some of the most ancient and well established beds of methane hydrate methane clathrates well, now The Guardian is reporting this. Andrew Thurber at Oregon State University found a methane leak in a region known as cinder cones in McMurdo Sound within the Ross Sea. In addition, the microbes which typically digest the methane as it's working its way up through the water, as it's bubbling up through the water, it actually gets eaten by microbes, and so it never bursts into the atmosphere, so it's not that much of a problem. Well, that's how it's been playing out. When I was in Norway two years ago, when we were shooting for ice on fire, the Leo DiCaprio movie when we were in Norway shooting on this I was talking with these scientists at this scientific institution that looks into methane specifically that's all they look at and they were like well so far it's not that much of a crisis because the methane isn't making its way to the surface because the microbes get it well these microbes are not getting it around Antarctica and apparently it's because the water is so cold so this if not the firing of the clathrate gun and I'm not suggesting that that's what this is this might be an early warning, and the question is, is this a 10-year early warning, a 50-year early warning, a 100-year early warning? I don't think anybody knows, but it's something that we all need to know about. And frankly, something we all need to do something about by way of stopping carbon pollution into our atmosphere by the fossil fuel billionaires around the planet. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com/hartman with two ends or enter the code hartman with two ends before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code hartman or going to cookunity.com/hartman. and welcome back to the tom Hartman university book club today we're reading from the last hours of humanity warming the world to extinction a book about extinction the climate scientists warnings have come true there's more carbon in our atmosphere trapping heat and moisture than ever before in the one hundred sixty five thousand year history of the human race we're on the verge of the first ice-free summer in the arctic in three million years And back then, the Earth was a very different place from the one currently cradling us. The consequences of a warming planet are appearing much faster than had been projected by climate scientists of just a decade ago. The most dire warnings, rising oceans, freak storms, and agricultural collapse, they're all taking place right now. And it's going to get worse. But now other voices have entered the fray. Those of geologists who study the longer-term implications and histories of a planet undergoing rapid global warming. Specifically, they are focused on extinctions. The climate scientists, geologists, and those from related scientific disciplines need to continue talking to each other because at some point we may be able to see the critical moment in which the current climate crosses from the realm of a global destabilizer to a global extinction event. We must wake up. It's hard to imagine life without Earth. We take the vast variety of life on this planet and even our own existence for granted. Numerous times in our planet's history life as we know it has come close to disappearing entirely. We call these events mass extinctions, and we even teach schoolchildren about those times of great death on our planet. For example, we know that long ago on a much more unstable planet, the dinosaurs were killed by an asteroid striking the Earth. This leads many people to believe that as long as we don't see an asteroid hurtling toward the planet, all is well. But this is not rational thinking for several reasons. The asteroid impact that killed the dinosaurs and started a major mass extinction is the only event having to do with outer space that we can trace with any certainty. And new science indicates that the asteroid impact itself wasn't what killed the dinosaurs, it was the global warming that followed it. New science has discovered a common theme in all of the extinctions in the past, and it's woven right into the global fabric of today as yet another mass extinction threatens our planet. That global, consistent thread is global warming. We have had six extinctions in the billion year history of life on our planet. Each sharp spike indicates one of these mass extinctions. Occurring about 450 million years ago, the Ordovician slash Silurian mass extinction devastated marine life, which at the time dominated the planet. In a series of two extinctions, 60 and 70 percent of all life on the planet was taken, respectively. Then, fewer than 100 million years later, the planet was rocked again. The Novian period was capped off by a 20 million year death march. It killed off 70% of life on Earth. This included many coral reefs which didn't return for another 100 million years. We know of the K-T extinction, the Cretaceous-Tertiary extinction, which occurred 65 million years ago, ending the reign of the dinosaurs. There was also an extinction event 200 million years ago known as the Triassic-Jurassic mass extinction. But none of these extinctions explains the huge spike shown in the center of the previous chart that one happened two hundred fifty million years ago and was the worst mass extinction of species event in the history of our planet it was the extinction of all extinctions referred to as the great dying the permian mass extinction took out at least ninety five percent of all life on the planet in fewer than a hundred thousand years an instant in geological time professor paul Wignall of the university of leeds and an expert on mass extinctions told me that the Permian was the greatest crisis that life on Earth has ever suffered. Only in the past two decades has the cause of the Permian extinction been understood. It was speculated that an asteroid impact may have been the trigger, but more recent research by Professor Wignall, geologists, and other scientists around the world have revealed the true trigger came from deep within the Earth. The Permian mass extinction was initiated by a colossal flow of lava in an area of what is now Siberia. That was the trigger, but not the killer. The killer was under the water and under the ice, where trillions of tons of greenhouse gases, largely derived from carbon and frozen in the form of crystalline methane, lay in wait. Thus, global warming is the force behind the death of nearly everything on the planet during the Permian mass extinction. That point is well illustrated. You can again see the spikes of mass extinctions measured by the increase in global temperatures, with the largest spike representing the Permian mass extinction. Wignall told me there have been a lot of disasters and crises in the geological past it's interesting to study them because they may have a comparison to today he added i think it is certainly extremely significant that a lot of the main crises of the past are associated with global warming with obvious implications for the present day the sixth mass extinction may even rival the speed and intensity of the great permian mass extinction but the sixth is not represented on either of the two previous charts that's because it's the one happening today Right now, all around us. And then we go on to document how the burning of fossil fuels is throwing an amount of carbon into the atmosphere, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, that's relatively similar to what happened with that giant volcanic eruption in Siberia 250 million years ago with the Permian mass extinction, and how it could be leading to a major extinction event. The book is The Last Hours of Humanity Warming the World to Extinction. There's a, an extraordinary video over on YouTube right now that was put together by Greta Thunberg and George Monbiot, the columnist with The Guardian. And it explicitly says, please repost this, please rebroadcast this, please use this. And so I want to play this for you because it is extraordinary. And it is thought-provoking and it's shocking. And I've got a little rant, I guess, that I want to get into afterwards with it. So here it is right here.
5: This is not a drill my name is Greta Thunberg we are living in the beginning of a mass extinction our climate is breaking down children like me are giving up their education to protest but we can still fix this you can still fix this to survive we need to stop burning fossil fuels But this alone will not be enough. Lots of solutions are talked about. But what about the solution that is right in front of us? I'll let my friend George explain.
6: There is a magic machine that sucks carbon out of the air, costs very little, and builds itself. It's called a tree. A tree is an example of a natural climate solution. Mangroves, peat bogs, jungles, marshes, seabeds, kelp forests, swamps, coral reefs. They take carbon out of the air and lock it away. Nature is a tool we can use to repair our broken climate. These natural climate solutions could make a massive difference.
5: Pretty cool, right?
6: But only if we also leave fossil fuels in the ground.
5: Here's the crazy part. Right now, we are ignoring them. We spend 1,000 times more on global fossil fuel subsidies than on natural-based solutions.
6: Natural climate solutions get just 2% of all the money used on tackling climate breakdown.
5: This is your money. It is your taxes and your savings.
6: Even more crazy, right now, when we need nature the most, we're destroying it faster than ever.
5: Up to 200 species are going extinct every single day.
6: Much of the arctic ice is gone. Most of our wild animals have gone. Much of our soil has gone.
5: So what should we do?
6: What should you do?
5: It's simple. We need to protect, restore, and fund. Protect. Tropical forests are being cut down at the rate of 30 football pitches a minute.
6: Where nature is doing something vital, we must protect it.
5: Restore. Much of our planet has been damaged.
6: But nature can regenerate. And we can help ecosystems bounce back. Fund. We need to stop funding things that destroy nature and pay for things that help it
5: it is that simple protect restore fund
6: this can happen everywhere many people have already begun using natural climate solutions we need to do it on a massive scale
5: you can be part of this
6: vote for people who defend nature
5: share this video talk about this
6: all around the world there are amazing movements fighting for nature join them
3: That. It's extraordinary. So there's kind of good news and bad news on this front right now. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has shot down, or at least a three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit, has shot down what's referred to as the Juliana case, Juliana v. U.S. It's being brought by Our Children's Trust It's a group of 21 young people who have sued the United States, saying basically, by continuing to subsidize fossil fuels and and the like, you are stealing our future. And two out of the three judges said, "Mm, you guys don't have standing. You young people don't have a right. You don't have standing to sue the United States government because the government is helping destroy your future. And one of the two justices or two judges said, "Wrong. They absolutely do have standing, and this is a crisis and an emergency." That's kind of the bad news is that they ruled against. The good news is, a, this is being appealed to the entire Ninth Circuit. All I believe it's eleven judges will, if they take the appeal, will hear the case, and b the court in their ruling striking down the case acknowledged that there's a climate emergency all three judges I mean the two judges who said sorry kids you don't have standing said but there is a crisis there is an emergency going on and it's something that probably the country should do something about and but it's just like the way to do it is not through the courts in fact what they said was that the solution would not be in the courts. They said, quote, we reluctantly conclude that the plaintiff's case must be made to the political branches or to the electorate at large. In other words, this is something that needs to go forward in Congress and in state legislatures. And it will only go forward, obviously, in those venues if you and I and everybody else who is halfway paying attention and awake votes for candidates who put climate change front and center in their candidacy, who are willing to fight and work for saving our planet. And that's a growing number of politicians. This has now gone from being a topic that's only occasionally talked about to being at the center of Democratic Party politics. Tragically, the entire Republican Party is still sold out to fossil fuel interests and is still lying about this stuff, just like the entire Republican Party right up until the late 1990s was claiming that tobacco didn't cause cancer and wasn't addictive because they were taking money from the tobacco industry then that got all blown up with some lawsuits showing that the tobacco industry was lying to us all and had been for decades they knew that they were killing a half a million americans every year and still are by the way but now it's fossil fuel money is the stuff that the gop is mainlining so, you know it's time to time to wake ourselves up and get out there and do something about this and a electing people but b, keep track of this case. I'll be keeping track of it on this program and on this show as we continue to move forward into the future. I wanted to share a story with you that I think is a really important one here. As the world burns, more and more fossil fuels are being used every day worldwide we're not seeing a reduction in fossil fuel production or consumption. We're seeing a steady increase around the world. And atmospheric carbon dioxide levels, just this last week at the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii, this is like, you know, the top of this giant mountain where they can get relatively pristine air and because they're out in the middle of the Pacific. It's not being influenced by nearby emissions like, you know, a power plant in the next state, that kind of thing. They just hit... 416 parts per million. In the 300,000 years since modern human beings populated this planet, carbon dioxide levels have never been this high. The fossil fuel industry has literally created an atmosphere to which the human species is not adapted. And... As a consequence of that, the massive storm, a bomb cyclone in Western Europe. Now, I don't recall bomb cyclones even being a thing prior to about 10 years ago. But they're a thing because the Arctic is melting, and large chunks of the Arctic have melted. And the result of that is that that ice cap up there, which used to stabilize the weather patterns of the Northern Hemisphere, are largely gone. And so you've got the jet stream doing all these drooly things that it never did before. And so you end up with weather patterns being far more slowly than they used to because the jet stream has weakened and it's not traveling as fast. And the result of that is that when you get rain, instead of getting one day of rain, you get five days of rain, which is called a flood. And when you get drought or high pressure dry area, instead of getting a week of high pressure dry area, nice weather, you get a year of it or six months of it. And the consequence of that. You can see in Australia, the entire continent on fire. You see it in California during the summer, wildfire season in the northern hemisphere. Sea level is rising. There was a huge chunk of ice just broke off of Antarctica. We're seeing Greenland melting to the tune of billions of gallons of water an hour. This is something that our species, our human race, has never before confronted. And We're just at the very, very earliest part of it in terms of seeing the actual unambiguous changes, the cyclones and hurricanes and tornadoes and and massive storms and high winds and floods and droughts and bomb cyclones. We're just starting to see this and it's going to get worse and worse and worse unless we do two things. Number one, we have to stop producing these fossil fuels and burning these fossil fuels. And, you know, that's the, the, the we must do it. And the good news is that we now have the technology to do that. We have the technology to, to produce as a transportable liquid energy system, hydrogen for example, which can be made by simply running electricity through water. It splits the water into hydrogen and oxygen. One element accumulates on the positive pole, and one element accumulates on the negative pole, the cathode and anode, and actually it's the other way around, and just take the hydrogen. Bill Gates just commissioned a super yacht that runs on hydrogen that you can make out of seawater, and you can generate the electricity to make that hydrogen with solar panels, there are possibilities. But here we just hit 416 parts per million. This should be a screaming headline all over the world. And as 17-year-old climate activist Greta Thunberg said, the saddest thing is that this won't be breaking news. And it truly is sad. And meanwhile, Donald Trump and the entire Republican Party continue to deny that this is even an issue. I mean, they're literally saying this is not an issue. It's a, it's a hoax. The global warming hoax. Why? Because they're taking money from a multi-billion dollar fossil fuel industry and from a relatively small group of people who became billionaires in the fossil fuel business. At the head of that line, Charles Koch, but there's a whole bunch of others. And they've been funding the Republican Party and a few Democrats too, although most of the Democrats that were denying climate change are now long gone funding these things for years and years and years. And these politicians who are taking money from these folks, they want to continue taking the cash. I mean, it's like a money laundering machine. Make money poisoning the planet. Take some of that money. Give it to politicians. The politicians get to stay in power to allow you to continue poisoning the planet and deny the fact that you're poisoning the planet at all. If this doesn't qualify as a crime against humanity, frankly, I don't know what does. We are are looking at our planet becoming increasingly uninhabitable, our children and grandchildren's future becoming increasingly bleak, and it is only being taken seriously by a handful of countries around the world. When the solutions are right in front of us, I mean, this is the essence of the Green New Deal, is we now have the technology between solar power, wind power, wave power, geothermal, biomass, with all of these systems now. We can produce energy that can power the planet, that can power a standard of life that we're used to. I mean, 20 years ago, the argument against anything like the Green New Deal, or even the argument against stopping burning fossil fuels was, well, you want to go back to live in teepees and, and clothing yourself with animal skins? Well, we don't have to do that. I mean, we didn't have to do that then, but now we definitely don't have to do that. You can generate electricity right now using solar and wind cheaper in most parts of the world than you can using fossil fuels. But the world continues to subsidize the fossil fuel industry to the tune of $3 trillion a year, $600 billion of that every year right here in the United States. Coming out of your taxes, going right into the pockets of the fossil fuel billionaires, So it's time for us to wake up. and it's time for this to become, as as Greta Thunberg said, breaking news. That we are in a climate crisis. It is one that the fossil fuel industry knew was coming and has known was coming since the 70s. Arguably even long before that. But certainly, I mean, you look at the internal documents from some of these companies. In the 70s and 80s, they absolutely knew what was coming down the road. And... Instead of doing something about it, they started funding people with scientific credentials who were willing to lie to the public about the dangers in order to maintain their profits. This is a crime against humanity. And we need to wake people up, share the word, and get active on this. All of us, right now.
0: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
3: Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. And uh, let's see here. Back in the day, back, you know, some, I don't know, five, six years ago, something like that. I wrote an op-ed, which I retweeted. It was on Truthout about a genetically modified organism that almost got into the wild and were it not for a a university professor in washington state by the name of elaine ingham or actually one of her students it may well have done some serious damage there's a bacteria that is on the roots of every plant basically in the world it's called klebsiella planticola it's ubiquitous it's it's everywhere it helps plants convert nutrients in the soil or in the water into plant material and And somebody came up with a brilliant idea of, hey, this bacteria is everywhere. Let's create a genetically modified version of it that will convert cellulose, because this bacteria was capable of digesting cellulose, that will convert cellulose into alcohol, and then we can take all this waste cellulose, you know, like the, the wheat stalks and things, just throw them in giant bins, toss in some genetically modified Klebsiella, and it'll produce gasoline, it'll produce ethanol, and everything will be wonderful and they were about to test this out in public in a public field in washington state and this student for part of his master's thesis or his phd thesis decided to look into this and what they discovered was that the genetically modified version that would convert plant matter into alcohol was capable of living in the wild was capable of reproducing in the wild and had it spread across the planet it would have killed every plant on earth, or at least a large chunk of them, by feeding them with alcohol instead of water. It was a big deal back in the late 90s. It led to a lot of concern about genetically modified organisms. Now this is not quite that drastic, but we're looking at superweeds. I mean, there's all kinds of issues around GMOs right now. And Bill Fries is with us. He's a science policy analyst with the Center for Food Safety. Centerforfoodsafety.org is the website. Bill, I understand that the Trump administration is trying to further loosen regulations on GMOs, on genetically modified organisms. Tell us about this. And by the way, welcome to the program.
4: It's really interesting. The Trump USDA released final regulations for this kind of overhaul of the GMO regulatory system. It was first instituted back in the 80s, and it hasn't had a major change since then. And without going into too much detail, there was initially around 2004 there was some, you know, initial moves towards strengthening the regulations because USDA had gained additional authority. But there were several false starts that never happened. And so now here we are in 2020, 16 years later, with something that's completely opposite of what was originally intended, right, which is, as you said, much weaker rather than stronger regulations.
3: What could be the consequences of of this bill?
4: From our perspective, it's 2020 now, and we've had GMOs for like 25 years commercially. And we're seeing problems that weren't so evident in the beginning when these crops were first introduced. And the main thing is, you know, you mentioned superweeds. Well. Those super weeds are weeds that are resistant to glyphosate herbicide, better known as Roundup, but also other herbicides, too. So they're really, really hard to control. And they've only really come on in a big way since the GMO era because almost all GMOs are herbicide resistant. right? And so they allow farmers to spray herbicides very freely without worrying about damaging the crop. What we've seen is a big increase in herbicide use. That's more selection pressure on weeds to evolve resistance to these herbicides. And it's become one of the major problems in agriculture now, these superweeds. Well, some of the additional authority that USDA gained has to do with addressing noxious weed issues related to GMOs, right? Noxious is just a fancy word for bad or or terrible, right? And sure enough, we have these weeds, you know, and we need either prohibitions or at the very least restrictions on these herbicide resistant GMOs in order to address this problem. But USDA doesn't want to address the problem.
3: My understanding is that it's not just that the proliferation of, or the widespread use of things like glyphosate, herbicides, plant killers, are producing an evolutionary pressure that favors the plants that are resistant to that particular herbicide, but that in the lab, in the process of developing Roundup-resistant soybeans, Roundup-resistant corn, whatever it may be, I guess it's BT corn, Bacillus thermophilus is the, the thing in the corn, but whatever, in the process of doing this, they're actually doing this by inserting that resistance into the genome of the GMO food plant and that that portion of that gene is capable of jumping into weeds in the wild. Do I understand that correctly?
4: Yeah, you know, there are two ways that this herbicide resistance can, can create problems, right? And you described them both perfectly. You know, one way is if it's a plant that cross pollinates widely and, and it has relatives in the wild you know, which some crops do, then you can have just the problem that you talked about with the herbicide resistance gene going from the crop to a relative, a weedy relative, right? And that can create resistance. But, you know, most of our problems haven't been from that because, like, corn and soybeans, the major crops that are herbicide resistant, they don't really have these weedy relatives. And it really has been from this herbicide selection pressure. And that doesn't make it less of a problem, you know. The thing to keep in mind is that, like with glyphosate, there were hardly any glyphosate-resistant weeds before these Roundup Ready crops were introduced as these Roundup Ready GMOs that are resistant to the herbicide. That was in the mid 90s. Hardly any at all, and now they're on about 120 million acres of cropland. And it's because the glyphosate-resistant weeds, right, which have become so epidemic, they create problems for farmers. And so, what does the you know seed pesticide industry come up with as a, as a false solution? It's newer crops that have resistance (laughs) to different herbicides, right? And so they sell that to farmers as, oh, you have glyphosate resistant weeds. Well, now you can spray dicamba or 2,4-D or some other herbicide because we've made the crops resistant to those as well.
3: I'm wondering what the average person, you know, somebody who's listening or watching this program right now can do about this.
4: Center for Food Safety, we do a lot of work on this policy issues. And we're trying as hard as we can on one issue is to get labeling, meaningful labeling of GMOs. And that would give people the opportunity to say, hey, I don't want to buy these foods. And there is a federal law passed, but it hasn't been. Uh, it, it's not very good. We're trying to work with, through the system to try to get it to be a little more meaningful.
3: So that's the consumer-applying yes. market pressure. What about political pressure?
4: Our organization, we have action alerts. You can check out our website. And we're always getting folks opportunities to email or call their legislators or regulators to get change. Great.
3: It's Center for, F-O-R, centerforfoodsafety.org. Bill Fries is the science policy analyst. Bill, thanks so much for dropping by. today. Great. Thanks, Tom. Tom Harbin here with you, and on the line with us is Ingrid Newkirk. She's got a new book out, along with Gene Stone. It's titled Animal Kind, Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and Revolutionary New Ways to Show Them Compassion.
1: Ingrid, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Tom.
3: I should add, you are the founder and president of PETA, the People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, an organization that I have known about, worked with. I gave a keynote speech at one of your, Jesus, this was back in 19... 19- 1980, I think. (laughs) 1980 or 81. One of your uh, early conventions. But anyway, I've been with you guys for a long time, and I think it's just wonderful what you're doing. IngridNewkirk.com, by the way, the website, and of course PETA.org, P-E-T-A.org. Tell us what you learned in researching this book. What were the most remarkable discoveries in your mind?
1: Oh boy, Tom, I thought I knew just about everything because I collect all this information about news reports of animal communication and intelligence and emotions and so on. But in researching the book, I learned huge numbers of things I didn't know. And it's hard to know where to start. But, for example, you mentioned the intelligence test we talk about in the book. And there is one now called the gold standard of animal intelligence. And I mean, take it or leave it. This is what researchers now use, and it's to show how intelligent an animal is. So it's called the mirror test. And if you can recognize yourself in the mirror, you're intelligent. Tribal peoples have problems with this. Chimpanzees have been able to think, oh, that's not someone attacking me, that's me. A little tiny fish called the rass who is also known as a teeth-cleaning fish, because you can watch this on National Geographic. Big fish line up for this little fish to go in their mouths and take out the debris between their teeth. This tiny fish can recognize herself in the mirror, and she not only recognizes herself, but she starts to preen, just like Kim Kardashian.
3: Mm. That's remarkable. I have one cat that does and two cats that don't. Where are we at? In this country, you know, around the world, obviously, there's a lot of things are much worse in many, many parts of the world than they are in the United States. But broadly speaking, where are we at in the way that we're treating our fellow, particularly mammalian, but across the species spectrum, our fellow animals on this planet? We tend to forget the fact that humans are animals.
1: Yeah, so we're always at war with each other. Our own species is always killing itself. It runs the spectrum, really, Tom, because we come so far, and people, in part, thanks to the Internet and all the videos you see, people do realize that animals are thinking, they are feeling, they experience fear and love and joy, and they want to be free and all that sort of stuff. But we also are not only beginning what Joaquin Phoenix on the Oscars was talking about this connectedness that we have to feel with all the other species that we're all in this together. But we still do some atrocious things like trophy hunting, for example. Botswana just opened up elephant hunting for the first time in years. So that was a regressive step. And we still have so many animals in laboratories We've got rid of a lot of tests. We just got rid of the forced swim test where they drop these little animals into beakers of water and they struggle desperately. And the researchers just record how long it takes for them to stop struggling. I mean, ludicrous things like the Harlow experiments you mentioned, but we also still do psychology experiments on animals that are hideously cruel taking monkeys away from their mothers still in some experiments. And, of course, we're seeing the rise of veganism. We're seeing the rise of vegan clothing. We're seeing an end to cosmetics tests on animals. We're seeing an end to circuses that use animals. But on the other hand, we've got a long, long way to go.
3: I'm always looking for turning points. And my wife and I became vegetarian in 67, 68, way back in the Great. day, really as part of our anti Vietnam War activism and flirting with transcendental meditation and stuff like that. But maybe a year ago, I think it was, Arnold Schwarzenegger produced a movie for, as I recall, it's on Netflix. I'm not, correct me if I'm wrong, it's called Game Changers. And it's about yes. all these world class athletes. I mean, literally, the strongest man in the world, the fastest woman in the world, these extraordinary athletes who are all completely plant-based diet. No animal products whatsoever. And they're not doing it because they're compassionate about animals. They're doing it because it's the optimal way to achieve good health and peak performance. And in the middle of the movie, one of the guys who's making the movies, his dad has a heart attack and they put him on this diet and boom, his heart disease resolves by six months down the road. I mean, it's just amazing stuff. Are we seeing major tipping points like we saw in the 60s, largely coming out of passivism and spirituality, now coming out of health and this emerging sense of compassion that we're all sentient beings here on this planet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And game changers, I can't recommend it enough. I'm a Formula One race car fan, and the world champion is Lewis Hamilton. And Lewis is actually an ethical vegan. But once he became vegan, He has said nothing has improved his race more. And he is now, I think he's seven-time world champion. He's opened a vegan restaurant in London. And all these athletes, Rich Roll, you know, long-distance runners, there's a German weightlifter who can pull a truck with people in it, a school bus with people in it, all vegan. And so people say, where do you get your protein? And nowadays you think people are learning. You can have vegan anything you want. There are taste-alikes that aren't made from animal flesh and blood and milk and eggs and so on. But also it is cleaning out your arteries. It's getting you away from obesity, diabetes, you know, high blood pressure, cancer. So, yes. There is a huge health push. There is a huge push among athletes. You know, the Williams sisters, the tennis sisters, they are vegan, too. And it's really exciting for many reasons. But compassion, obviously, is what we need to have for each other. And we need to learn more about animals and learn how they are not just like us. They are us. We're all in it together.
3: People say, where are you getting your protein? And I said, well, you're eating dead cows and pigs. Where did they get their protein? And they yes. give this blank look like, didn't you know cows are vegetarians? I mean, elephants are vegetarians. It's like <laughs> some of the most powerful animals, hippopotamuses, rhinos. I mean, they're, they're all they're vegans, essentially. So,
1: Italians, yes.
3: Yes. Oh, by
1: the way, Tom, there was, I have to tell you, you know, we talk about human heroes, animal heroes I have in the book. But mm-hmm. one I didn't get into the book was during the L.A. fires. This horse was, I saw on the news, was about to be loaded into a trailer. And the horse farm behind him was completely enshrouded with smoke, and behind that was the fire. And suddenly he heard something, his ears pricked up, and he ran back down the road and into this smoke-filled ranch. And everyone's heart was in their mouths saying, oh, God, don't go back in there. And he had heard a mare, Winnie, and he went back in, he found her and the foal and he led them all out to safety on the road i mean that's like the rock in some hollywood wow. blockbuster
3: yeah you that, know? that is truly remarkable it's a marvelous book it's called animal kind by ingrid newkirk the remarkable discoveries about animals and revolutionary new ways to show them compassion ingrid newkirk thank you so much for being with us
1: thank you tom
3: the website's ingrid newkirk spelled just like it sounds and of course peta peta.org people for ethical treatment of animals wonderful stuff. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Animal Kind, Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and Revolutionary Ways to Show Them Compassion by Ingrid Newkirk and Jean Stone. This is from the very first chapter. Researchers at Germany's Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology were dumbfounded. The excitement wasn't over a new fossil or the discovery of a previously unknown human ancestor. It was over RICO, a border collie. In experiments conducted in 2004, the very normal-seeming 10-year-old canine had learned to fetch more than 200 objects on command, and moreover remembered them all a month later. Determined to discover the limits of Rico's abilities, the research team subjected him to a battery of cognitive tests that revealed astounding problem solving abilities. Rico could easily retrieve from another room items he was familiar with, but when told to retrieve a new item, one he had never heard before, Rico correctly deduced that the unknown name must correspond with an unknown object and correctly retrieved it. The border collie's cognitive abilities were subsequently compared. To that of apes dolphins parrots and eventually human children researchers often end up comparing their animal subjects intelligence to humans but is intelligence truly easy to compare animal to human or even animal to animal if rico could use the process of elimination to correctly fetch a tennis ball does that make him smarter than an arctic tern who journeys forty four thousand miles each year between the north and south poles Is a piano-playing cat more intelligent than a chimpanzee who shares 99% of her DNA with humans and can learn sign language? Comparing the intelligence of animals is, in fact, no easier than comparing the intelligence of humans. Who's smarter, Aristotle or Plato, Newton or Einstein, Monet or Manet, the red-lipped batfish or Chinese giant salamanders, the Indian elephant or the African elephant? In the end, ranking the relative intelligence of animals is a futile exercise. What's more, a recent study found that less than 15% of the estimated 9 million species on Earth have been discovered. Who knows what fantastical creatures reside at our ocean's crushing depths, soar high in the stratosphere, or creep deep in the densest jungles? What fantastic intelligence do they display? Or more so, what fantastic intelligence we can't even comprehend? We often consider intelligence as the only factor in determining which animals deserve compassion and which don't. Yet we're still so limited in our understanding of human intelligence that it makes little sense to calibrate our animal brethren based on how similar their brains are to ours. Or perhaps you could say it's simply not an intelligent way to determine importance. The goal of this book is not to merely question that superiority or to show that animals think and act like us. It's to show how they do not and to honor those differences. How can anyone compare the mental faculties of a gibbon vaulting through the forest with a giant blue whale singing through the deepest oceans? Different animals excel at different actions. As we'll see in this book, animals think, navigate, communicate, love, and play in extraordinarily unique ways. However, for many years, scientists believed that intelligence was indeed all that mattered when it came to animals, and that intelligence consisted of a continuum with humans at the most developed end. Every other species could fit neatly into that spectrum, a concept heralded by the great naturalist Charles Darwin, who wrote in his 1871 book, The Descent of Man, that, quote, the difference in mind between man and the higher animals, great as it is, certainly is one of degree and not of kind, end quote. In essence, Darwin meant that because all animals share a common ancestor, they also share the same toolkit of mental abilities, but at different levels. Not a new idea. 2,400 years ago, Aristotle presented his idea of natural ladder, or scala natura. Like Darwin, Aristotle advanced that all life could be conveniently ranked with lesser animals, like worms, on one end, intermediate animals, like dogs and cats, in the middle, and higher animals, such as monkeys and humans, at the far end during the middle ages christian theologians expanded on aristotle's teachings with the great chain of being a hierarchical scale that began with god at the very top followed by angels humans other animals plants and then minerals each layer of the chain also had its own hierarchy among humans for instance kings aristocrats and other noblemen were at the top while peasants were relegated to the bottom the highest ranking animals were large carnivores like lions and tigers who were untrainable and therefore seen as superior to docile animals like dogs and horses. Even insects were subdivided, with honey-producing bees ranked higher than mosquitoes and plant-eating beetles. Finally, at the very bottom sat snakes, their lowly station, a result of the serpent's deception in the Garden of Eden. Even throughout the 20th century, scientists clung to the notion that animals can be neatly ranked by their human intelligence. Scientists devised increasingly cruel experiments that could serve as universal tests for animal cognition, many of them led by University of Wisconsin-Madison psychologist Harry Harlow. Previously, Harlow was best known for a series of experiments from the 1950s in which he removed infant rhesus monkeys from their mothers and provided them surrogate mothers made from wire. The traumatized monkeys' desperate attempts to be caressed by their inanimate mothers during times of stress became the basis for research into maternal separation, dependency needs and social isolations. Many historians cite Harlow as a factor in the rise of subsequent animal liberation movements. Animal Kind is the book by Newkirk and Stone.